0: The sheer quantity of big data available to us marketers can feel overwhelming. The term drinking from a fire hose comes to mind. But without the solid data points on which to make business decisions, we're stumbling around in the dark. In this, our first episode of Hit the Bottle, we chat with a friend and visionary leader who is revolutionizing the way we look at data in the beverage business. My co-host, Emma Criswell, and I lead a discussion on how interpreting market intelligence and customer data can help us build better marketing programs. And our tip of the week is how to implement data-driven marketing. I'm your host, Michael Wangbickler, and this is Hit the Bottle.
1: Welcome to Hit the Bottle Podcast. A practical guide to beverage marketing through the lens of strategy, technology, and leadership. From exploring the buyer journey, to leveraging modern public relations, to how marketing automation is changing the way we engage with customers. Hit the Bottle goes above and beyond the ordinary to ask and answer the right questions. Each week we chat with industry experts, explore practical applications, and discuss the newest trends all to provide you with the insights and strategies you need to create successful marketing programs. It's time to hit the bottle.
0: This man has been at the forefront of technology innovation for the wine industry for two decades. He has held leadership positions at Wine.com, Wine Direct, and Vintank. He founded Inertia Beverage in 2002 as one of the first major companies established to bridge the gap between wineries and their customers. Today, he is CEO of Emetry, a software company that aggregates data from a range of digital sources to provide better insights for producers. His expertise in the field of wine technology is in high demand, giving him speaking engagements around the globe. He's a personal friend and colleague I'm pleased
2: to welcome Paul Mabry to hit the bottle. <laughs> thanks for having me here, Mike. I, I have the heart symbol I'm showing him right now. And, and, and the two decades part is making me feel old. I'm not going to lie, but yeah. it is what it is.
0: And well, I, I went through the similar thing. I thought thinking about how long I've been doing this and it's been longer than
2: that. So. But it shows in your beard nicely. It's got that good gray going on. <laughs> yeah, so. thanks.
0: <laughs> so um, I wanted to start off uh, asking a couple questions and that's... Um, you know, well, first of all, actually, before we get into the interview, can you let people know uh, where they can actually um, contact you?
2: Yeah, that's super easy at uh, www.emetry.io is the uh, company website. And I'm uh, simply Paul at emetry.io. That's E M E T R Y.io. And then um, across all social media on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, it's uh, P Maybre So P M A B R A Y. Um, and my favorite platform, if you want to find me or talk to me is always Twitter because you're constrained to 280 characters. So it makes my answers easy.
0: That's great. So, um, let's, uh, kind of throw a couple questions at you. So, uh, why should beverage producers care about data collection and analytics?
2: Yeah. You know, um, it's, it's interesting. We've been so divorced from, um, Customer understanding because of the three-tier system, you know, uh, that it's time that we really recaptured a, a full understanding of all of our customers, our our consumers, um, our DTC consumers, uh, the ones in broad market as well as our retailers. I mean, I can't tell you how, for how long you talk about marketers and they say they're trying to market the wine product, and then you ask them who their customer is in Boston, um, in Austin, in Dallas, in New York. And you can't name who the consumer is picking up the wine off the shelf or drinking it in the, on, you know, off the menu. And I think it's important that we understand that uh, for the future. Otherwise, it's guesswork. Um, and more importantly, by reading the tea leaves, by looking at data, which is the new oil, uh, we're able to make good decisions, better decisions. Okay, so well, what, what kind of decisions can we make? Well, we can decide on what our packaging looks like. We can decide on which markets are better for us. We can decide on price points, who our competitors are um, how they're competing against us. Uh, we can decide on if our brand actually drives sales for other products or not, um, which consumers are more valuable to us, which ones are rising, which ones are falling in our DTC list. Um, what's, you know, the average life cycle of a consumer, you know, there's so many things that we can do to do some good predictions and really kind of build business processes and structures around, uh, better answers. It's interesting when you look at just, let's just use the basic element of direct-to-consumer, right? This is the data that we have on our own. We own it. It comes in it comes in lots. That We just did a, a partner. Uh, they had 700,000 orders, and they never mined that data. They didn't know where the customers were living. They didn't know what the average order value was. They didn't know, was it different when they bought on the web versus when they came to the the um, tasting room uh, did wine club members buy more wine or less wine these are kind of basic premises and you can build strategies around like wow okay our wine club is are really we think they're the most valuable customers but they're just really taking our wine club shipment really our most valuable customers are these people that are coming on the internet and spending two thousand dollars every four months uh, and i know that sounds like a ridiculously small anecdote but it's pervasive across all the wineries trying to understand this piece
0: so uh, what are some of the activities that we can do with some good data set well i
2: i think that there's a, there's so many applications, it's hard to, <laughs> to put into one sibling, and I will give quite a few little examples. But um, I think that in general, data is, is the, the glue that allows us to understand ourselves and our customers better. I think that that's a fundamental piece. And when I say customers, it's an abstraction that means everything from the consumer that picks up wine shelf uh, in a market, to the consumer that comes to your tasting room, to uh, your retail accounts, to your wholesalers, and how they're behaving with you um, and, and even just your own, uh, performance in general. Um, so, uh, you know, that's why I'm, I'm being very abstract because we work with large data sets across all those different tiers. Um, so in the kind of broad market consumer insight, right. How are you doing against your competitors? What competitors are you actually competing against is a really simple thing. Often we think we know who they are, but we're just saying it because that's our aspiration or, or, we're, Containing them within a small category, Michael. I mean, the, one of the greatest examples I have of that containment is one of our partners was saying, Hey, I want you to organize this all against Sonoma Coast Pinot Noirs. I'm like, That doesn't even make any sense. No shelf in the world puts Sonoma Coast you know, Pinot Noirs as a category, right? Right. It's kind of a strange thing. You're up and against a bunch of categories all the way from New Zealand to Burgundy. To, it's all over the place. But really, what he was doing was they were confining that thing, saying, We were the best Sonoma case Pinot, and using that as a tool just to, to get better placements at the retailer and the wholesaler saying look out of all the Sonoma Coast Pinot Noir's there are we're in the top 3 right which was an interesting model for me to see how they did it um in the price point um you can see trends you know is is uh pick pool coming becoming hot uh, secret it's not um <laughs> <laughs> i love spoiler people. yeah yeah yes. <laughs> narrator it wasn't. Um, but, uh, you know, um, you can see, um, uh, you know, who's influencing your wine, you know, where that's happening with, um, online, which channels your wine is having more activity, So you can do better targeted marketing against that. And if you're really doing really mad science work, uh, you do all this great cluster analysis and then you weave through to understand, um, you know, of these different clusters, meaning like, okay, we'll call it the, the, the Paul and Mike cluster, right? And we, we like comic books. We uh, uh, go drink some bourbons. We go to TechSum every year. We read uh, The Economist. So now you understand our likes, our preferences, where to advertise.
0: So it's behavioral data rather than just demographic data. Because I mean, that's one of my biggest frustrations working with, with this industry is that there's finding access to that really uh, granular behavioral data Um, has been difficult and really like a lot of the business decisions that these wineries make is based solely on demographic data, which, which doesn't actually capture the marketplace very well.
2: Uh, Yeah, I agree on two parts there. So the first part, the demographic data is a really crude old school blunt instrument. It's like saying men between the ages of 35 and 45 behave like this, That's a really ridiculous, or, or yeah. <laughs> it's a, yeah. the millennial word is like a terrible word. The Gen X word is a terrible well, word. Exactly right. Yeah. I couldn't agree It's more. like such a big cluster and it doesn't behave and it behaves differently by market. It behaves differently in so many factors. And so technology has unleashed all this data for us to do this micro clustering, or at least look like behaviorally how people look more like each other. Um, to your point though, the wine industry has really leaned in on that demographic data. And they've also been very strong in leaning in on survey data which is a very terrible way, you know, so they take these small surveys and they abstract them to be X,
0: right? It's not a large enough sample size.
2: Exactly. And the sample size are abstracted to be as big as those cohorts of like gen X or Millennials. So you take this little tiny sample and you say it applies to these general, like, uh, uh you know, I won't name any of the other pieces cause I want to be kind about that, but they're just, the reality is it's, it's not a way to look at a, you know, 80 million U S cons- consumer or 90 million, whatever it is. Um, cohort, right? Right.
0: The fact is, is that, you know, somebody who's 80 and likes to surf may have have more, more in common with somebody who's 30, you know, and likes to jitterbug, right? So it's, it's, you know, it's, one of those things where, you know, it doesn't matter what your age is. It really matters like what you're into and wine is very much a part of that.
2: Agreed. And behavioral, uh, I think it's really interesting. I think that we look at behaviors as it also, it's just, a, yeah, just to be clear and behaviors are tied to also something uh, that we forget about in the wine sphere lies occasion. So like, you know, maybe you come over for a dinner at my house, I'm going to open a really nice bottle of wine but this guy named Frank comes over and I'm going to go get a pretty inexpensive $15 bottle of wine because I don't like yeah. Frank that much. it's just quaffable, right? Or, you know, maybe I'm sitting by the pool for the weekend and I really want to blow through, you know, some Kistler Chardonnay. You know, maybe I want to go just a nice, you know, Robert Dave Fumé Blanc and just kind of have a nice, enjoyable, good, quaffable drink by the pool all day long. Right, yeah. So,
0: yeah, exactly right. You're the same consumer, right? So, it, you know, and it really depends on...
2: On the situation, yeah, I behave differently at different times, and I think we forget that. I mean, and we forget that the fact that wine has a variety of uses, all the way from the the most fundamental one, which is alcohol delivery. <laughs> to be fair, right, and, uh, uh, all the way up to like existential experiences, where the sky opens up and the light comes down, and I've tasted a piece of heaven. Right, so. <laughs> I've
0: had that experience. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, um, okay, so uh, let's assume that. You know our listeners; they they understand the value of the data, uh, and perhaps they even have access to it. So how how should they be using uh, these the data the 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 market intelligence the the data analysis to make decisions about their business?
2: Yeah. So uh, look, there's strateg- strategical strategic, and tactical ways to use data. To be fair, and depending on the organizational size, and but like. Each one of these tea leaves adds a different answer, right? So when the data unlocks. So I'll give you an example. There was a, a a major enterprise level winery. It's one of my favorite stories. And it was, let's say it's 2014. They said, you know, Paul, we know this Rosé thing is coming. We feel it, but we don't see it in Nielsen, which is the lagging indicator. Because once it's in Nielsen, it's already done. It's in the supermarkets, yeah. right? <laughs> They're like, Just jump the shirt. Yeah, exactly. It's already you're, then, you're, then you're a fast follower at that point. And they, they're they not a fast follower company. And they said, you know what? Can you go dig through all of social media, all of Delectable, all of Avino and find, measure all the different rosés. And I want you to show me the fast risers and the fast fallers. And I want you to show me how their descriptions are, what are their colors, what are the labels look like. Um, You know, what are the flavor profiles? And so that was their intelligent design because they're going to spend two to three million dollars to come out with a rosé brand in marketing, advertising, resource allocation. And we're talking a big brand, obviously. Um, I thought it was genius. It's a smart way to say, okay, what's happening early stage? Where's the canary in the coal mine? How can I do product innovation instead of guessing or just sampling? What's the market starting to feel? What's on its way up? So if PickPool, let's just pull that back into the example, was happening. Where is it happening? What's it happening? What's it look like? What's it taste like? If we're going to make our own pick pool and make a bet, let's make a safe bet instead of a guess. So that's a strategic example.
0: You mean that's a better way of making a decision than throwing something at the wall and seeing. That is,
2: but I mean, even the label design was a fascinating thing. They were yeah. like, what are the label designs that are resonating with consumers today? What's happening? What's out there that's making a difference, right? Um, both on quantity and qualitative. So they were looking at both of those answers. So how did, uh, so,
0: I mean, that's, that's, To me, brilliant, you know, because the fact is that, you know, label design, when it comes to, you know, speaking from a marketing agency point of view, you know, label design is one of the hardest things to to come up with because it's, it's, it really depends on, I mean, a lot of times it's just gut feel that these, that these wineries are designing with. So like, you know, how, how are you, how were you able to gather enough data in that way to be able to make a recommendation?
2: So we didn't make the recommendation. So we're in, we weren't, we weren't, just to be clear, we were, we were just, here's the roadmap of what you're looking at. You have to read the tea leaves with your own self and your agency. So, right? so it'd be up to the agency. It's to, the agency to, to help on that one. Well, but, but to be fair, we, we narrow cast the selection set. We took all this broad stuff that would have been like, okay, here's all the shelves of all the rosés. They all look pink, which what's going on. No, there's no real data about these small brands that are happening out there. Cause they're not in the big brand measurement tools. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, So, but, but that also lends to your question. So we, we called the data from all the social media channels, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook at the time when you still could um, delectable, you know, the kind of the core wine tasting apps. And we, we just harnessed in this gigantic data pool and I can probably find some of the stats, but that's my biggest problem to be honest with you, as we were talking earlier, which is access to finding data. I'm like an oil miner searching for the right source of pure data. Uh, and fidelity. Did you use machine learning to, to,
0: to this process or? How, that, you know? that
2: had a team of analysts on that one. And so machine learning is an interesting thing. Uh, I don't think you really can apply that quite yet to this problem, but I, obviously machine learning can be applied to everything at some point. Um, but there's something about having an analyst look at things. And when you have sometimes disorganized data like Rosé or, you know, uh, you have to have some oversight on some things. And I'll tell you a great example of that oversight. So once um, James Joy and I in the old Vintank days, uh, we were we did a social media listening, which was big data, and we were calling, I think it was like up to 10 million, 20 million conversations a day. It was just like water falling on us and and James. Exactly. And we always watch which words were trending on the back end of our software, see what's going on, just kind of as a litmus test. And Chardonnay just like started to skyrocket. We're like, oh my God, something's happening. And, uh, you know, we were just about to call the press and say, you know, every winery should pl- plant 10 times more Chardonnay. It's hot. And what happened is it was a, a rap song uh, with Marvin Gaye talking about Chardonnay. I'm sure you know that song. Who, who's, who is it? Uh, P. Diddy has it, right? Yeah. And so because that song has just come out and it was being repeated on all the social media channels, it overindexed on Chardonnay. And if we hadn't had a human look at that.
0: Yeah, right. Yeah, the mach- the, yeah. Machine learning would just pick that up and said, hey, there's a trend here.
2: And rose is a pro- so we did use machine learning for things like eliminating noise versus signal, right? So like as an ex- and light algorithms a little bit of machine learning. So rose is a great example of that. So rose is everything from the the color to the wine to the flower, you know, to to the flavor. So there's all kinds of different things that occurred in there. So you have to get rid of the garbage to That's get right, to the, the signal. From the chaff. Yeah, we from the chaff exactly.
0: So um, so who. Uh, if you, if you can name names, like who is, who's, who's doing this right, right now, who's actually been leveraging big data to, to help them with their, you know, marketing decisions as well as their production decisions.
2: So I, I don't think it will come as any surprise that the big four, you know, and I, I, Gallo, Constellation, Treasury, uh, um, Pernod Ricard do amazing jobs. And that's, that's not disclosing anything they do excellent stuff they even release their own reports about the consumer insights from gallo and constellation um you know great teams great leaders um you know whether it's you know um annette druce from perno or jj Wiseman, or used to be dale um uh, stratton from constellation you see him on the silicon valley so they've got really strong powerful leaders um dan tropiano from treasury that they've got really smart people looking at this data in different ways and and extracting it out and um the smaller wineries are doing a good job too they're leaning into data more and i think that um it, it's fascinating i think the that one of the greatest investments a small winery can make is in their people right now i think that we we underestimate the value of people how so uh, we have a very romantic industry right people want to come work here and they'll take pretty big pay kits to come here well that tends to lean us into people that will take the pay cut to come here yeah. I, <laughs> I don't necessarily need that. That's the best choice. I mean, we want the best talent to make our industry better. Um, so one of the things, and we want more of that talent that is specialized. And as an example, like if I'm a winery and I'm doing over, let's say, let's say $3 million in DTCs just as a kind of baseline. If you hire a 60 to hundred thousand dollar, crm data analyst specialist they'll lift that sales 20 to 30 percent year one to two and three so that's a so that they, they've rationalized RRI, it yeah right I, I mean that always but no one's doing that
0: nobody's doing that because i don't think i mean frankly i don't think the, the expertise is there at, at the at the upper levels of management of some of those companies right because you know um I, you know, I, we encounter it all the time with, with our clients is that, you know, the fact is, is that a lot of, uh, winery owners are farmers or they, you know, come from another industry. There may be engineers or doctors, there's lots of lawyers, those sorts of folks who, who, um, who are starting wineries or starting wine brands, not to, not, and well, even legacy brands, legacy brands, you know, they've been around forever and, you know, pass from one generation to the next. They're, they, they, they know how to make wine and And they have a lot of great instincts about it, but they don't necessarily have the expertise to know like, okay, I need x, y, and z skill sets in my company for us to be able to grow so like what advice would you give to folks and for a way to actually find those right people
2: yeah, that's to, to to restate your question,' saying, what should we do to do a better job at that is essentially yeah. for the resources I mean, I think that look um you're somewhat right about those pieces. I think that the, the industry itself we're kind of isolated and we, we behave differently because we have an annual product that has a limited production. So there's a kind of a, a risk uh, template that we have. Um, but It's also different than other agricultural products. What I mean by that is like if a vodka brand we get potatoes all over the world the vodka tastes the same right it's not you know i'm using that as a small example right so that grape it's got this limitation this boundaries but i think more importantly to that is we've been so fortunate for two decades straight of double digit growth that that's been our greatest inhibitor to r d and innovation and fighting it's a, and a it's a blessing and a curse and it's happened to all the industries It's happened to us in all the valleys, and it's happened to us in multitudes of ways. I mean, just the eno tourism itself in California is envied the world over, right? And it and and everywhere except for maybe Mendocino and the Sierra foothills is still booming with eno tourism and growing uh, all the time. So I think that that's part of the problem. It's it's not broken until we need to fix it, you know. And I think that in fact, if you look at an anecdotal um, evidence of that, if you look at two thousand nine. That's when we changed to DTC. We've had DTC for a very long time, even if it was just 14 reciprocal states, but we really started to do something about it when the wholesalers delisted it as a big recession. Um, we're about to hit another problem, which isn't probably, I, God hope not, but a new recession may be heading on the way or not. But the reality is the competitive set is beyond what we've ever seen domestically and internationally. Uh, that's a headwind that we have to solve
0: so going there okay so that's you know that's, that's that paints a pretty bleak picture for 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 a lot of producers out there so so what is it that 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 a producer you know not necessarily at the at the top of the agency can do right now uh, to start using
2: the data assets that are out there to
0: help them with their business? Yeah, I think
2: that's an excellent question as well. And I just had this email this weekend with a a large producer, a legacy producer, and they've been around a long time. They have a lot of DCC. And they were so focused on this concept of CRM, which uses data. And they were trying to find the ultimate CRM tool. And so what I said to him, which was really fascinating, he was kind of taken aback, was like, it's not the tool, it's the processes and the culture that you need to change first. And... You can do 90% of what you need to do day one, pick up the $100 bills off the floor if you change process and mind share. And you can do it in Excel spreadsheets. You can do it in like some simple SQL debt, but you have to invest. And it'll build on itself stage after stage until you get to the advanced stuff. Walk before you run. Know yourself before you know others. Very basic like Dr. Seuss-ian, you know, kind of examples. I think that that's... That's a piece. It's a cultural change at the top. And it's starting with some simple, small bites. That's the thing. You, and then you build upon that and build upon that and build upon that. I think that's fundamental.
0: So so actually what you're saying is that, you know, it really kind of comes from the top it's a cultural change, cultural shift in any business that says, hey, we need to start looking at not just our production numbers and, you know, how many cases we're depleting, but we need to think about, okay, how are we reaching our target customer?
2: I think that, that it's, you're exactly right. But I think that the 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 leaning we have is that we say, we look at our customer, but we look at them and they're walking through the tasting room floor. the hospitality aspect. And so you can see it manifesting itself in Napa and, and bleeding through the whole world, which is this arms race for better tasting rooms and God, they're beautiful. Don't get me wrong, but like they'll never return. They'll never have ROI on them. You're fighting against another, you know, winery building another gigantic experience. And you're trying to compete on the greatest limited uh, funnel in the, in the history. I mean, I've said this a couple of times, it's like saying, hey, you know, I want to drive a Ford car, so I'm going to fly to Detroit, I'm going to drive the <laughs> Ford car, I'm going to fly back home and they're going to ship it to me when I want it. To. You know, it's it's a terribly inefficient customer acquisition model. If you look at it through that lens or Tesla, which is even a better car, I'm going to fly to San Jose, right? Um, we need to actually look at the... DTC in general. And, and even the big companies, I I'm really serious, you know, and some of them have a good grip on it, but like, just look at Nike as a, a, an analogy. Nike makes 30% of its revenue DTC. And that was up from zero. What? I don't know, seven years ago, nine years. Ago. It's, that's a huge pivot. That is yeah. Going from in to
0: Well, you know, and we, and we've seen this, you know, with uh, you know, the shrinking of, of retail store space or at least like localization of it and, And then, you know, the dominance of things like Amazon, you know, in that, in that space.
2: Marketplaces eat markets. That's a true story. And Amazon's got big teeth and it wants a little piece of all of us. But the reality is when you're competing in marketplaces, you're competing against price oftentimes or convenience. And those are not where we want to fight. Those are losing battles. And, you know, restaurants have found that. And I mean, Grubhub is an example of that or Uber Eats you know, you're, they have to create whole new kitchen models. It's not the same, right? So yeah, that's a, that's a good, great example. So,
0: um, so you started Emmetry a little less than two years ago. Well, you actually joined Emetry? Yeah.
2: Yeah, I joined as a board member two years ago and I joined as CEO about, yeah about a year ago. So they, they placed me into like really kind of like put in some innovation. So it's been a a fun journey. Okay. So what, so how does Emetry add value um, to your customers? Yeah, so we are a big answer factory. I think that's the choke we have inside. And so we solve problems across kind of three pillars for wineries, what's your consumer insights, what's your DTC insights, and what's your broad market insights. Um, And give those, and some of those answers are instructive. um, And some of them are actionable. um, But really, we're kind of like looking at how to solve. And then we have our customers ask us a lot of custom questions that we try to add into the software. But our whole goal is to help wineries see around corners. Uh, we work best with um, a combination of uh, an agency and a winery so that they have a good execution tier or large wine groups, you know, but really nicely with agencies for the medium and small wineries so that they can really have a, an actionable team that really puts all these cool insights into, act, into to practice, right?
0: Paul, thanks a ton for joining me today really appreciate it. some great insights um i'd love to have you back on the show at a later date i think we have a lot more stuff to talk about but unfortunately we're out of time today so thanks a ton now it's time for a discussion segment on hit the bottle she's a former european trained chef with a passion for food and wine plus a penchant for digital marketing She spent eight years honing her marketing skills at wineries in Napa and Sonoma, and prior to that, 14 years in media marketing. In August 2017, she founded the digital marketing agency, Cork & Fork Digital Media, to help food and drink businesses achieve their full sales potential in the internet world. Her company specializes in digital advertising, search engine optimization, email marketing, and organic social media strategy. It's Taylor Eason. Hello. She's the founder and president of Wine Glass Marketing, a full-service DTC marketing agency, a 30-year luxury marketing veteran. She's an expert in digital marketing. Over the past 15 years, she's applied those skills to the wine business, working with wineries such as Opus One, Foster's Wine Estates, Goose Cross Cellars, and Diageo. Recognizing the need for a comprehensive analytics and communications tool, she founded WineGlass in 2012. Welcome, Susan DiMattei.
3: Thanks for having me.
0: She's been writing about wine, food, and spirits for 10 years. For the last seven years, she has used her 25 years in the tech industry and 15 plus years of experience with CRM and client data to follow, to found Fine Wire wire Consulting, specializing in CRM, data analysis, and digital marketing for the wine and spirits industry. She marries an expertise in wine and in technology. She's Thea Dwelle. Hi, guys. And finally, she's the Starsky to my Hutch, the croissant to my coffee. VP of Client Relations at Balzac Communications, my colleague and co-host, Emma Criswell. (laughs) Hello. Welcome, everybody, to Hit the Bottle. Thanks a bunch for joining us today. So our subject today is uh, interpreting market intelligence to build better marketing programs. And we've discussed this a little bit prior to the show, and I thought that, Susan, maybe you can lead things off with some of the thoughts you have on this subject.
3: So the thank you for asking. The, the subject was really about what marketing intelligence are available. So what's in market or about the market that we're working on our specific clients with. We do try to look at benchmark data that is available to really set the stage for newer wineries sometimes, or somebody that's launching maybe a new tier or a new type of wine. We get the question a lot, you know, how much should I charge for my... Um, you know, new rosé that I'm going to do since I've never done one before. Um, and it's really important to see what the landscape is and, and what others are doing. Uh, I'm sure others here have funny stories, but, uh, you know, it, 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 you, were, you were expressing to your buyer, whether it be a psalm at a restaurant or somebody who's buying it on the shelf or even somebody through the Internet, what your value of your wine is by the price and, and how you're setting it. Um, we had a Solano County winery. Um, they only had one wine. It was a Merlot and they decided to launch and um, wanted to be $80 a bottle for this Solano County Merlot. And when I asked them why they said, you know, cause it's good. And <laughs> I, I was, you know, there's no, there's no awards, there's no real vineyard designation and it is Solano County, not that it's not right on the other side of Coombsville, but um, I was able to pull some data from the Wines and Vines um, annual report and show them sort of what the benchmarks were available and put them more in, in alignment of what would be you know better expectations. So some of the tools we use are the wines and vines, July issue um, for the past four years has had some tasting room uh, survey information that's more D 2 C oriented. The challenge with that is they don't ask the same questions every year. Um, so like if you have a client that wants to know what's the average lifetime value of a club member, you might have to go back three or four years to find it. Um, There's also the D2C wine shipping report that's done with Wines and Vines and Sovos, who who owns Ship Compliant. But that's only shipping data, and 90% of those clients are from wineries under 5,000 cases, Um, and so that's really, really skewed. Um, So that's hard as well, And, and then there's the State of the Wine Industry report that comes out from Silicon Valley Bank, and that's really high-level trends um, about varietals and acres planted. That's actually where I got the the average bottle price. Um, so that's kind of very directionally helpful. But on the whole, our industry, I feel, doesn't have a really strong consumer-based marketing um, uh, database that they can go to, you know, we don't have our own Nielsen data for like consumers, you know, um, and that's why it's, you know, so many people have to create their own databases and really rely on their own data because there's not a lot of, of packaged, you know, benchmarking data out there.
0: So what do you mean by benchmarking, Susan?
3: If you know that, you know, I can go to my client and say, you know, 28% is a decent open rate for an email and they'll say, well, how do you know that? And there is no benchmark for, for wineries, but I can say, you know, MailChimp says that twenty-two or twenty-four percent is a good open rate for a retail message. But in the wine industry, because we're a little bit better than say, you know, toilet paper or kitty litter, you know, people are more exciting, so people open our emails more. So maybe you should be focused around thirty percent. It just gives you guys a it gives clients an idea of how they're doing vis-a-vis the world or people around them.
0: Yeah, I mean, my my experience is that you know um, a lot of the clients and potential clients who come to the, come through the door here um, often don't really have any clue as to terms of you know what the what the benchmark should be. You know, they have no real understanding of you know how how their various marketing uh, processes should perform. Um, and that, you know, that really does come down to, you know, kind of a lack of, of data and tech, data intelligence. Thea, you know, uh, this kind of like plays into, you know, our concept of big data. I know that you've been working, you know, in this area for, for quite a number of years. So, you know, like how can wineries, distilleries, breweries, how can they be using, you know, what we refer to as big data, um, to help them with their marketing programs?
4: Sure. And the way I like to put it to my clients is there's really two things you need to understand. There's big data, which really you want to call that marketing trends or market trends, what's going on with the industry, with consumers, or with wholesale right now. And Susan mentioned some really great tools to you know review that and look at those benchmarks. But then wineries have to understand that they need to be looking at their own data. And that's really been a critical factor in the success of my clients. If, if you don't know what your own data is and what your customer behavior is, you can't capitalize on that. So by understanding what the industry insights are, and then using those to leverage your personal data at your winery or your spirit distillery, that's where the power is. And that is really where there's a lack right now in the industry. And what happens is a lot of times people don't follow up on that information. They might have an insightful email that's sent out with a very specific target, but they don't follow up on that, so they're missing a huge opportunity. So that's where I focus a lot of my time, is digging into that data, understanding what your data is if you're you know, Ian J Gallo, obviously your data is going to be very different than if you're a 2000 tiny allocation winery, but you still have data and you still have the power to use
0: that data. How, you know, t- this is a great this is a great segue for Taylor. So so like how are we going to use that data? How do we make, how do we use um, data that that we that we know we have, you know, in in you know, or we hope we have, you know, within within the winery. Um, you know, how do we, you know, what, what kind of decisions can we make based on, on the data that we have and what kind of programs can we put in place?
5: Well, I pretty much make no decisions without data. <laughs> that's the way I, that's the way I work. Um, I usually take customer data and create customer personas. Um, most of my clients are marketing directors, VPs of marketing, and there's a lot of wineries out there that don't even know who their customer is. I mean, I'm sure the other two ladies on this call are hearing the same thing. But um, I begin with who you have in your database and start to form with that data a, a persona that, that allows you to market to a certain segment. So I had one winery who came to me and said, hey, we need a customer persona developed. Here's all of our email. Here's all of our analytics. Go do something with it and figure it out. We think we have these young hipsters that are coming up from the city. And I'm like, okay, let's go see what they really actually have to go again. Spent many, many hours doing this. And then I figured out, well, basically you have a bunch of old people that buy your wine, but they didn't know that. And I mean, it was, you know, they, they, their demographics were totally off in their mind. And with that new knowledge, they were able to go, they had their aspirational segment of, yes, we want the young hipsters from the city, um, but we also want to sell to the to the older baby boomers that are make up the majority. I mean, we're talking 70% of their database was, was baby boomers. And, but they wanna take that 30% and expand it. So it allowed them to make that decision. Okay, if, if these are the offers that are now resonating with um, with the younger set, then we'll go after those people. What are those people buying? You just dig into all the little minutia, and I, for some reason, enjoy doing this. Uh, but you just dig into minutia, and, and that's how you figure out your next steps. So that's just one way to use data is developing a customer. I could go on website metrics or something that I, um, that I dig in a lot with as well. But I, go, going back to, to Susan's, I wanted to talk a little bit about pricing. It might be going off topic, but it's a funny story. So I had one client who wanted to figure out how to price their high-end cab and i won't i don't want to give too much away of this particular winery but how they decided how they were going to price was not necessarily based on how much it costs to make the packaging was heavy i mean it was all like the luxury signals of wine and they got a bunch of psalms together um double blinded um their competitive set and this was 200 plus you know 180 plus um, wine price points and they, they won the pricing they, they won the tasting so they said, okay, well, if people are paying two hundred dollars for this X wine, then they will pay this for our wine. So I thought that was really clever, and and it worked. And it, it I thought going in, oh, this is great Gray, but it it worked, and they were able to sell the wine at that price point. So that's another idea of benchmarking. Just go out there and get people who know what they're doing. I mean, these are high end somms, like master somms, and and they had those connections. So. That was how they decided their pricing and had nothing to do with data, whatever, except for the data of those songs.
3: Yeah. Well, at least Taylor, that's some sort of data. You know, it was, data doesn't have to be from a database, you know, the, the client I had from Solano, they had no, no rationale except they just thought that they wanted $70. You know, that's what they wanted. And at the time um, I was consulting for them. It was far back before I had started this company and I was actually trying to get them in some restaurants and people who were tasting it wanted to know either they, they wanted to know if it was, if if something had gone terribly wrong in production to drive their cost of goods so high that they needed to get $70 a bottle in order to make up for this wine. So that all the questions, it, it flipped the argument and, and, was so interesting to me because um, I, I suggested they not do it. They were they held that they wanted to do it, and then when I started presenting the wine, everybody that tasted it said it's okay. But what's wrong with the company? You know, like what? what and they immediately went to why did it cost this much to make this bottle of wine? So I think that being out of alignment for no, you know, on, on anything, um, we we have we've have clients all the time that. Um, as you were saying earlier, don't have any idea when they have a database of a hundred people and they send out an email, they expect us to have a hundred orders, you know, and it's like, it doesn't, it doesn't work that way.
4: And I think that's a really good point, because going back to something Taylor said, you know, in in consumer packaged goods, which I have a background in vis-a-vis Salesforce, you're not going to market Frosted Flakes to your grandmother who's eating grape nuts. And by knowing that information, you need to market differently. And the wine industry hasn't quite picked up on that yet. But marketing to the millennials and marketing to the Zs, who really aren't drinking is different than marketing to my mother who's a boomer or myself who's a generation xer and they're starting to pick up on that and that we all have different pocket money so to speak but that's a really critical factor in that you need to understand those data points even with the pricing of a wine it's like as you said you know why is this wine 85 dollars? it's from solano or conversely why is it not 85 dollars? it's from coombsville so that sort of thing thinking is is sort of a slow slow to catch on mm-hmm. yeah well
0: even even more even more so is that you know we need to you know, this is this is um, something that I discussed with Paul Mabry, and that is that you need to, we need as an industry move beyond the generational uh, tags, because the fact is is that um, it has less to do with your age, uh, how you buy wine, as much as it does your behaviors and your hobbies and your lifestyle. So um, we need to we need to get better. We need to get better as a, as an industry in. In really kind of building out our customer personas better Mm -hmm. and figuring out like, you know, who actually is buying our wines, not in a general broad sense of, you know, oh, it's, you know, millennials or, or Gen Z or Gen X, but in terms of, you know, what it is that how it is that they're actually consuming this wine and how it's a part of their life.
4: Well, to do that, we need to get better at data collection because we're really good at data right. collection for consumables for other industries. But when it comes to alcohol Bev, it's very difficult to get that data collection because number one, we're not asking the question when you walk in a tasting room, but number two, we're not collecting those on our email lists. But as we know, you know, if we're on the internet and we're clicking on an ad, they're capturing that information to use in, in the future to advertise to us, but we're just not doing that effectively in the alcohol business yet. Or in that.
3: And, and, to, and to go back to Taylor's point, there's other ways to get that data too, like your, you know, your, your Google analytics or your, your social media yep. is a great example. Mm-hmm. You can see how people react to posts, you can say like, Oh, I, I think I have a lot of foodies, you know, because they were acting a lot to my recipes or what have you. If you pay attention to the data that you're getting in all forms, it'll help inform you better in your outreach and your engagement in your marketing.
4: And in order to pay
6: attention, you have to understand why the data is critical. Mm-hmm. And how do you start that conversation with one of your clients, with a winery who, say, thinks that they do still need to, you know, just market to an age group? How do you show them that it's a different question they need to be asking and a different approach they need to be taking?
4: So I think to Taylor's point about personas, which is a great way to approach it, my first question to a potential client is, do you know who your customer is? And if they say yes, I ask them, so tell me who you think your customer is, and then we'll go in and look and see if that's actually accurate. Because nine times out of 10, they think they know who their customer is, but they don't actually know that. And so reframing that and making sure that I understand who their customer really is and who they think their customer is, so we can come to a point in the middle, that's really the first step.
5: And very, very eye-opening for for the customer. I mean, uh, absolutely. They've, that, that yeah. one customer that I talked about, they ended up just switching up gears completely, knowing that, that particular project was so important. And, and this was a, a brand that wanted to go more into wholesale. So when you're in a wholesale situation, you need to know who your customer is even more so, I think, because you don't have the data analytics from someone who's taking it off the shelf at all. You at least have some data from a DTC customer. You have uh, average order value, and you've got the age. In theory, most people should be collecting age. And I mean your aspirational segments. I mean to to Mike's point of who are these people? And I know Paul talks a lot about it's not just an age. It's an it's a it's a, a psychographic more than anything else. You can be 65 years old and and still drink tons of wine but go spelunking on the weekends i mean that's that's everyone is different uh but having that you know no adventure the adventurer is that's where you don't know anything so it's really hard to to get the psychographics from a customer
0: yeah so i think it really you know there's there's two challenges here that we're facing here in the wine business and you know i think everybody on this call has been working towards you know Addressing that is that there's 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 the data collection piece, um, and there's and then there's basically the 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 piece of okay now that we have the data collected what do we do with it?
4: Yeah, absolutely.
3: We so Wine glass marketing we have um, projects and then we also have some retainers, and if you're a retainer client with us, we mandate that you have a monthly benchmark or, or dashboard. Um, and we discuss what, what do we want to achieve? And it might be, you know, better quality guests coming to the tasting room and buying more, in which case we're looking at average order value or things like that conversion to sales, um, and, and channels that are appropriate to that. And so we would set up whatever that dashboard funnel, whatever you want to call it is with them and then look at those month over month, um, to go back to your question, if we have a client that can't, they don't get it at the beginning, after two or three of those meetings, they get it. You know, they start to see the, the things change. And over time, things will start to um, turn in the right way. Uh, it takes a while. It also is not an immediate fix. Um, but it, it's critical to, to, otherwise, you don't know that you're doing anything. You're just sort of spinning.
5: Right. I mean, I've always told people what gets measured to fixed. I don't know who said that a long time ago. But dashboards are are crucial in every aspect of any business, not even just the wine business because if you don't see where you've where you've come from, how do you figure out how to go ahead
0: those that who may not necessarily know what a dashboard is, can you explain what that what that entails
3: sure it's uh typically it's a visual representation of what you're trying to metrics that that make up what you're trying to achieve so In the example I threw out, if if we're working with a client that is an old 30-year-old winery here, and they're kind of known for being a little bit of a party place, and we notice that they have this huge database that nobody ever buys, and their average order value is very, very low, because it's it's the place you go to when you have a bachelorette party. You know, so the metrics that we would want to work on with them would be quality of audience, average order value, conversion to sale, um, re, um, re, re, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Repeat purchases, um, say, you know, wine club tenure, things like that that show that they're getting a higher quality, more serious consumer. Um, and you would set up those types of metrics and programs that would help those things, and then. You might have a pie chart or a bar chart or something that's trying to show how that's moving over time.
4: And that comparative analysis is really important in what I'm doing with email marketing, because showing that not only are people actually increasing your open rate, the audience is increasing, but the click through. It's a little bit more tricky to actually capture order value from emails just based on the integration points. But knowing that people are actually clicking through and looking and reading about the particular offer or the particular thing is a really valuable um, metric to show the customer and show them people are paying attention now. They're no longer just 1% open rate. We're now up to 7% open rate.
6: Just watching that grow over time has been critical. And when you take on... And I can
5: speak to website metrics. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. It's all
6: right. If you wanted to keep going, I was just going to ask a question in terms of when you're taking on new clients and creating new dashboards, are there sets of data that you always use for everyone or is it completely different?
5: Well, I I can speak to that a little bit. Um, A lot of my clients are search engine optimization clients. And Google Analytics is a key, key, key tool to, um, to give me an idea about uh, what, are their, what is their, their baseline. And I start looking at, I mean, I look at everything on Google, but what are their page views? What are the uniques, uh, the visitors? How many people are they getting? How many conversions do they have? And I, I create a baseline from there and then I can measure what marketing uh, efforts are working or not. And whether the SEO is working, uh, there's lots of Google, uh, free Google tools that allow you to figure out if, um, if what you're doing is, is moving the needle uh, for website metrics, as well as, um, as conversions.
3: At Wineglass, our typical um, dashboard has five data channels. Um, we look at Google Analytics for your website, MailChimp or Vertical Response, or wherever you're sending your emails out of. Um, the social channels, typically Facebook, Instagram, if, if you have Twitter, or YouTube, the e-commerce engine, you know, so whatever is, is selling wine or usually it's your e-commerce slash club. And then sometimes if they have a tasting room that's on the ball, you get the tasting room metrics of traffic, um, bottles poured. I've had wineries want to look at how much waste they have as far as pouring, um, but we start with sort of those buckets, and we set those up. You know, Google Analytics is great. You can set it up to just email you, you know, on a frequent basis. Or we have our own dashboard that we just upload to all of our clients, and pulls the data that we want. And then, um, and then the the, the the client can customize it as they see. You know, if they really want to drill down. Um, when we worked with with Chuck uh, Beckstoffer, they wanted to go down into the the different. Um, sub-brands, because they had nine different brands. So we actually had a whole analysis of what each brand did and that type of thing. But that, you know, so you can customize it off of that. But we always start with our, our set
6: basic. Sound like some really great deep dives. And it's interesting that you can measure things coming out of the tasting room that are physical in that way. I never would have thought about empty bottles and waste as a data set that I could have, you know, information on.
3: Yeah, it depends on what the client, you know, some people are really into their, their tasting room, um, you know, traffic and number of tastings. Um, I was working with a winery last year that would not only count how many people came in the door, how many were club members, um, so that they weren't, because the tasting people didn't want to be looked at conversion of total people. They wanted to look at conversion of people who weren't already club members, because they didn't want to be dinged on people who were already club members that they couldn't convert because they were already a club member. You know, so some, some. I think I, I, I think this has been a very interesting year. Um, I, I was talking with some people at D2C back in January that. People are now starting to talk a lot about dashboards and about data, um, and I've seen that more with the tasting rooms. It's sort of started at the tasting room, and now it's kind of coming into the whole e-commerce um, website club thing, which is interesting. You would have thought it was the other way around, um, but at least I'm seeing as, as the tasting rooms are more getting geeky into the details, which is, is great to see.
6: That's fascinating. Do you find that there are any wineries or any clients who are able to do this sort of thing themselves successfully? Or is this something that you think you should really hire an expert to take care of you for? I
5: I think the sophisticated wineries can do it themselves. And if they have the bandwidth, I mean, there's so few wineries that have the the bandwidth. It's not a level of sophistication. I think it's more time than anything else.
4: It's bandwidth and budget for sure you know even even small wineries it's bandwidth and budget because bigger wineries might have a resource allocated to it but it doesn't necessarily they're doing it well um, but smaller wineries might not have the bandwidth budget typically at a smaller winery i'm working with one person and there's a three-person staff and the, everybody's doing seven jobs so it definitely gets a little challenging
5: yep crm yeah.
3: and it also comes down to it also comes down to tools unfortunately there is Yeah, there's not a standardization in our industry of something that will pull all those, you know, I mentioned five channels. There's nowhere to pull all of that. Um, There are some benchmarking software, but they're really, really expensive. Um, If I'm allowed to do a little plug, we're about ready to launch um, a a dashboard that sits on top of WineDirect and Commerce 7 that pulls these channels. Um, But it's really hard to find something that's affordable um, in that area. Or you have to do it manually and just put it in Excel.
4: Well, also just going back to a lot of wineries don't understand why a CRM tool is important, and they're using POS tool in you know even smaller wineries with VineSpring and with Square, you're not capturing the data that you need to or should be capturing because you're using a bare bones e-commerce tool or even a POS tool that doesn't actually have a CRM component, and so you're missing out on that information. And you might have a mailchimp database on top of it, and you might have an Excel spreadsheet of wine club members on top of that. So the ability to pull that together, unless you're having a human do it, which I actually do a lot for these people, uh, you know, it definitely is tedious and time-consuming, and you have to understand how to connect the dots.
0: Well, thanks for bringing that up, Thea. Um, unfortunately, that's that's a, uh, that's a topic for another day because we are out of time. Uh, I really appreciate all of you joining me on uh, Hit the Bottle Today. This is a great conversation. I think that we're probably going to have to continue it um, in a different vein on another show. I'd love to have you all back. But in the meantime, we have to wrap up the segment.
6: Hi, everyone. Emma here with this episode's tip of the week, how to assess your data-driven marketing. In today's highly connected world, there are more data points to be obtained than many of us can fathom. While some may think more is better, that's not necessarily the case. The key here is to know what kind of data you need so you don't overwhelm yourself or your team creating the outreach strategy you need. Some of the best advice we've received on the topic is to follow, so get your pens ready. First, you need to understand your goals, and don't collect data for data's sake. If what your winery wants to know is whether more people are purchasing from out of town on the weekends or through the week, it doesn't necessarily make sense to collect data on what they're purchasing as well. A second useful point would be if this customer is a repeat purchaser or not. A second helpful tool is knowing the benchmarks to compare your data and having a system in place to corrugate, gather, and analyze it all once you have it. While larger wineries typically have the budget and the bandwidth to have employees track and gather these points in-house, for most wineries and beverage businesses in general, it saves time and is more efficient to hire an outside expert to help you here. Have a listen to this podcast discussion section to give you some ideas on who to call if you're interested in data collection for your business. I hope you've enjoyed this week's tip. Have fun collecting your data. And until
1: next time, I'm Emma Criswell. This has been Hit the Bottle, a production of Balzac Communications and Marketing. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, or wherever you find your podcasts. If you like this podcast, please rate and review the show. Thank you for joining us. Until next week.